3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome back to 855am Radical Radio 3CR. This is James here, joined by Grace, and this is Monday Breakfast. Welcome to the program. Grace, how are you doing and how was your weekend? Good, good. How has it been for you? Oh, pretty good. I can't complain. Um, it was a pretty restful weekend, really. Um, didn't get up to too much. A little bit of football. I did go to the grand final on the weekend, the AFLW grand final, which was wonderful. And saw uh, Brisbane get up over North Melbourne, which was a bit sad. I was going for North Melbourne, but, you mm-hmm. know, that's how it goes. How about you? Uh, I think mine was quite eventful. I ha- I went for a, a pasta dinner with my friend, who I haven't seen in quite a few months now. Ooh. So it was really good. It was really lovely. The pasta was really good. I had it at Brunswick. It was a really proper Italian restaurant, so... It's called Mama's Boy, Trattoria. Wow. It's really, really good. I recommend people to go there because the pasta is just amazing. And the people there, the service is just really nice as well. And wow. they give me free ice cream. They give me free, free ice cream. Free gelato because um, it's actually my birthday today. Oh, happy birthday, Grace. <laughs> Thank you so much. So I did actually, I actually didn't tell them that was my birthday. I don't know how they found out. I, I think they overheard that we, when we was, when my friend and I were talking. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, I got free gelato, uh, really good gelato as well. It wasn't in the restaurant itself. It was in another gelato place. So, I think they they know the people, like the, the, the Italian restaurant and the gelato owner knows each other. So, that's why I got free gelato. So, yeah. good stuff there. It's well called done. That's called Lagome Gelato. Really wow. good as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, starting off my birthday early this morning on Tracia Radio. Yeah, what a great way to spend your birthday, you know, getting up in the morning and doing the radio stuff. Yep, amazing stuff. So So, it's coming towards the end of the year, Grace. How do you think this year has gone? Hmm, honestly, it felt like it passed by really quickly. I feel like I just came, I just flew back to Melbourne in Feb in February yeah, and I was like oh my god I want this year to be done because I don't want to go through my assignments it's so tiring it's so I can I do not want to be doing the same thing again and again and the next thing you know I'm here now done with uni and graduated so well it's kind of insane it's been a really lovely year in a way that I've learned a lot of stuff I've learned so much from journalism and my studies and people around me I've experienced many many things and yeah, it's been a very fruitful year. Wow, well you. done. How was yours, James? Uh, well, the year's been a good year. Uh, similar to you, a lot of self-learning, a lot of stuff that I've learned about myself, which I never would have learned um, if I didn't have the opportunity to take a rest and have a look at the world and myself. So on the whole, it's been a good year. I mean, the international context, there's a fair bit going on, which has been a bit of a downer, of course. 
Um, but can't complain too much personally. It's been a pretty good year. Awesome. And the radio is just amazing. I love this. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing to do. Good thing. And we're also going to be putting up our most loved interviews very soon. Yes. We're going to be going to go on a break very very soon, but not yet. So, yeah. Looking forward to that. That's the summer programming for 3CR. So you'll catch some of our best interviews throughout the whole year over the summer as we take a break because, you know, that's what summer's for. Mm-hmm. So why don't we get to some headlines, Grace? Yep. So starting off from me, the Walkley Foundation will be reviewing their checkbook journalism rules after it was revealed that the Seven Network had paid Brent Lerman's payment for a year to secure an interview that was later nominated for the 2023 Scoop of the Year. The Journalism Foundation board did not mention that they would withdraw seven shortlisting for the 2023 Scoop of the Year award for Liam Barlett's interview with Lerman. And in its own statement, Seven has claimed that it was ignored, that this was acknowledgement from the foundation that its entry has, quote, fully met the entry criteria for this award. In other news, a net zero policy for new gas projects has been abandoned after industry objected. The Northern Territory government walked away from a proposal to set net zero emissions requirements for new onshore gas developments after the industry objected, a government document show. Letters and emails released to The Guardian under Freedom of Information laws show that the Files government quietly consulted the gas industry in late 2022 about a plan to meet the key climate recommendation from a scientific inquiry into fracking. Other key stakeholders and the public do not appear to have been consulted about the proposal. So now we're going to go to our first interview for today. Uh, this is with Connor Flynn from the Save the Preston Market campaign, who came on to uh, Solidarity Breakfast to talk about an update to the campaign to Save the Preston Market, where storeholders have been offered new five-year leases. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And in the studio, we've got Connor Flynn. How are you, Connor? Good, Annie. Great to be with you. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've got some news about what's going on at Preston Market. I mean, there's always so much going on. And as I was saying, there's, it's a very dark feeling we've got at the moment. But something good has happened at the Preston Market. Well, that's right. Um, FreeCR, this radio station, has been a keen observer of that community campaign to protect and defend that vital... Open space, and uh, a few weeks ago we received some news that uh, the leases at the market will be extended for a further five years, which is on top of the government's uh, compromise solution to protect the site um, while accommodating for development. So, Okay, and tell us about the compromise uh, government plan. So the last time I was here, it was just before a major rally was held um, at Preston Station, hands around the Preston Market, where about 2,000 people gathered in support of Preston Market. And a few days earlier, the state government announced that they were going to introduce a series a whole lot of milly mouth words. Yeah, yeah, you know, I studied or tried to study urban planning for a while, but even the terminology went over my head. But in short, essentially said that the site or a large part of the site can remain, but... um. A, you'd have to build around it rather than knock down 80% of the market, move it to the eastern side, um, 
of the location. Which was what the developer wanted to do. Absolutely. Yeah, and so uh, giving uh, stallholders five years leases, that's a really good sign. It is, but it doesn't take into consideration that a number of um, storeholders have had to sell up their businesses and move away because of the uncertainty that our Sultanetic um, had over them and their lives and their livelihoods for a long period of time. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So where does it leave the community now? Well, I think in my perspective of chatting with people I know in Preston and Reservoir and indeed throughout Melbourne, um, people are have breathed a sigh of relief that this community asset is going to remain where it is because it was a dark cloud was hanging over Preston. You've got to remember that for a very long period of time, you know, it's been in the it's been in the forefront of development in the eyes of the state government and Salter as well. They've always known that Preston is an asset in, in part of planning policies in the city and Salter wanted to completely knock it down and transform the northern suburbs. So having that certainty is great. Have you heard any reaction from the developer themselves? You know, Salter Medic, they, they put up a number of press releases um, through their channels on LinkedIn, but also the close ties with Channel 7. But after the announcement was made in August, they um, remained very quiet. And the announcement itself was made through their for a trading group with close ties to Salter called We Are Preston Market. So that announcement came from them on their social media rather than Salter itself. Oh, that's interesting. So this is actually a, a definite move by the state government to listen to... It's been a concerted effort, of course. It, it uh, They've finally actually accepted that the community has is a stakeholder here. Absolutely, but we must remember that if it wasn't for pressure from below from a well-organised community campaign, the Preston market would be rubble right now. Yeah. You know, the during the pandemic, the state government, you know, was ramming through a series of planning proposals. They had um, secretive hearings, um, which, you know, what, consultative committees, you know, the like show trials, you know, rubber stamping, you know, official government policy. Um, but coupled with, with, you know, that was all set to go ahead, but, you know, the community got organised, they organised a series of rallies, um, they engaged in a wide variety of different avenues of struggle, whether that was, you know, the electoral space. I mean, it's really important that the Labor Party, which have held the seat of Preston since its creation in the 1940s, they almost lost on the back of this issue, Um there are an internal polling said, no, we'll only lose 3 or 4% of the vote on this issue, but they almost lost. Yeah, they lost They, they lost 15%. They did. And, you know, the, the local Labor MP, you know, one of our first actions in the year was targeting the Labor Party because they were a weak link. They said to be on the side of the community, but all of their actions inside and outside of Parliament demonstrated that. Um, mm. It's interesting to me, too. I went down to that rally outside that uh, office and um, something that really is obvious is that, uh, one, I was on the train station, which was uh, sort of uh, Russian brutalist, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, and also the person's office is on an incredibly busy road, which is, all these things are very uh, human, uh, not human scale and not friendly. Uh, and it's it appears to me that, a whole lot of stuff is going on that is making this city almost unlivable 
uh, for human beings. And this is this was at the nub of this, wasn't it? It was. I think that what type of city we want to live in was at the heart of this issue. Was it a city in the interest of profits or, the, or a city in the interest of people? And that was the message that I was reinforcing in conversations I had with people, but also at forums of where community members were allowed to speak. Um, in May, the campaign organised a mass rally at Preston Town Hall. About four to 500 people turned up, and that was the overarching theme of those conversations in that meeting, up to including that if push came to shove and if you know the government decided to go knock down the market, that the community were prepared to engage in a series of community pickets to defend that site, as we've seen, you know, with efforts like the East West Tunnel, Fitzroy Pool, Richmond Secondary College. There's a whole number of examples in recent memory of the community um, acting in its own interest to defend public space. And, you know, people live in these in suburbs. It's like their town, uh, but others who are making the decisions are in their chauffeur-driven cars and never stop. Oh, that's right. Like, you know, when um, Sam Tarasio first purchased the site in 2004, Preston wasn't the place to be, you know. It was, you know, 10 kilometres away from from the city, but it wasn't seen as like what Northcote or Formbury is now. But Tarasio, you know... He's one of the richest people on the planet for a reason. He's a very smart capitalist, like he recognised that given the anarchy of planning controls in the city and that the government had, were always looking to sites like Preston but also Box Hill and, and the outer west of profit-making, um, that's why he held on and neglected that site for as long as possible to say, we can't possibly repair and restore, I'm going to knock it down, transform it into apartments up to 20 storeys high, and then cash out at maximum return. Yeah, yeah, and just have this roneoed uh, mass of flats that run. I mean, I know they like to call them apartments, but they're dog boxes, basically. One of the most galling things that was labelled against our campaign is that we were opposed to affordable housing, which was completely That's incorrect. That's really, really irritating, isn't it? Especially when it comes from people who profiteer over the housing affordability crisis, we thought they were having us on. Um, in plans that members of the community in our campaign put forward, we could still keep the market and then build a series of developments around it, but with an emphasis on, on public and affordable housing. Yeah, well, it's just it's just because they go to public relations um, uh, firms who come up with a good idea and a hook. That's what it is. It's like it's like um, uh, everything's based on gossip and everything is inflamed and emotional rather than actually dealing with the facts. It's a terrible thing. It's like a punch on the community's face. It's very much like the coverage in uh, Palestine at the moment. <laughs> you bet. Um, Okay, so this is a watching brief because, of course, we've learnt over time that five years is one thing, but uh, never lose your grip on the uh, or iron the ball. No, that's absolutely right, Annie. Um, but there's a few teething issues that remain, like the state government, now led by Premier Jacinta Allen, has said that there's going to be no room for consultation, so there's avenues in which the community can still apply pressure on the government. They say that we've already had those hearings in 2021, 2022. There's no need for anyone to engage in the process further and they're currently thrashing out um, and what the site will be like um, in the planning offices in Nicholson Street as we speak. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? The government thinks they're more important than the people. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for coming in and talking to us and updating us. No worries. And just lastly, Annie, I think that 
the recent times of, especially in Israel and Palestine, have highlighted the importance of um, independent and free media. Um, it's galling that since uh, October 7, that more than 52 journalists have been killed in the conflict. As we know, more than 46 Palestinians, about three Lebanese journalists and four Israeli journalists as well. So journalists are always in the front line um, when it comes to reporting on those conflicts and always the first casualties as well. So... That was Connor Flynn talking to Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Radio on the Save the Preston Market campaign, uh, updating that storeholders have been given uh, new five-year leases. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying... Free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Gumbanja nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. The Victorian Government is demolishing Melbourne's public housing flats, displacing 10,000 people during a rental crisis, growing homelessness and a wait list of over 120,000 people. The State Government is selling off people's homes and breaking communities apart, forcing people into unstable, unregulated, privately run community housing is not a solution. Join us for the National Day of Action to Save Public Housing. 1pm, Saturday, December 9th, Victorian State Library. Save Public Housing Collective is a 3CR supporter. You are on Monday Breakfast here on 855am 3CR Radio. We're now going to go to an interview with David Glanz from the RAC, who talks about the rally that occurred on Saturday the 18th of November to set to highlight the people from Indonesia still stranded in Australia's refugee policies. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got David Glantz on the line. He's from RAC, Refugee Action Collective. How are you, David? Not bad, not bad. How are you this morning? I'm good, uh, except for everything that's going on in the world, which is sort of uh, a tangible uh, mess. But uh, you'll speak out today on the Steps of State Library in Melbourne here at uh, 2pm is also shining a light on something that is unfinished business, aren't you? Absolutely. Um, there are literally thousands of refugees offshore who are stuck in limbo because of the policies of the Australian government. The 
service under the coalition and then under Labour. And the biggest number of those are in Indonesia. There are almost 14,000 refugees who have been banned since 2014, so it's nine years now, been banned from coming to Australia, even if they do so with the support of the United Nations. And those 14,000 people, they can't go back. They come from countries like Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, where there's no there's no return. Um, and they don't have any right to work or have a driver's licence in Indonesia. They're living on what are basically the scraps paid for by the Australian government. Uh, but they can't apply to come to Australia either. And we think this is a total disgrace. Labor, in its policy coming into the election more than 18 months ago, said they would look at this. Well, they haven't looked, and they certainly haven't done anything. And the lives of those people is... Uh, the lives are getting uh, worse and worse. People are becoming more and more desperate. Uh, and we will be hearing from one of those refugees at the rally, uh, by phone, obviously, um, a guy called Hussein Shah Rezai, and he's a Hazara refugee, so from Afghanistan. About half of all the refugees in Indonesia are from Afghanistan, are Hazaras. He's a writer, and he'll be speaking to us over the phone about the situation that he faces and the other 14,000 people face. And we'll also be talking about the refugees who are stuck in Papua New Guinea. People who are listening to the show might remember the, the campaigns and the struggles of the men who were locked up on Manus Island, which is part of Papua New Guinea. Well, that, that story isn't finished. There are still 62 men living in Papua New Guinea's capital, Port Moresby, uh, who have nowhere to go, uh, who have not been accepted by Australia and have not been accepted by other countries. And to be honest, are slowly going mad. And to make matters worse, they are facing eviction from their accommodation um, and uh, no money for medical care and even for food. The situation is becoming absolutely desperate for 62 men. In other words, you could fit them all on a decent-sized tram going down the Burt Street Mall. Uh, that's how many people we're talking about. They should be in Australia as should the refugees in Indonesia, and we'll be highlighting the situation for them. And last but not least, there is uh, about a dozen refugees, asylum seekers, on Nauru. Uh, there is still a detention centre on Nauru, which the government has committed $400 million to in, a, in its most recent contract. And they sent a boatload of people, a very small boatload of people, who we believe are Sri Lankans, probably Tamils, sent them to Nauru, where they are stuck in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. One of them is a child. One of them is an adult who has tried self-harm. Um, so we're going to be, you know, turning the spotlight on the situation for all these people because the refugee crisis isn't finished. Um, it's just hidden from, from view at the moment. Oh, in fact, I'd say it was being um, uh, heated up because every time the Western powers decide they want to have a war, generally speaking, it just spills out with... Uh, uh, it's usually resources wars um, and other types of things of that sort, and it just spills out into a wave of refugees. Yep, absolutely. Nearly 
all the people who are trying to get to Australia from Indonesia, Papua New Guinea or Nauru are victims of wars. And most of those wars are wars that Australia has been um, a participant in. If you are running from Afghanistan or uh, Iraq, you are running from a situation that was created by Australia. Um, and uh, Australia clearly has a responsibility as a very rich country to take these people in, and that's why we'll be out campaigning. We'll be hearing, as, as well as from Hussein, speaking from Indonesia, we'll be speaking, uh, hearing from uh, Bethlehem, who was a refugee who spent time uh, on Nauru and is now in Australia, and she'll be coming along to speak about what the reality of life is on Nauru if you're a, a detainee. We'll be hearing from Margaret Sinclair, who's a RAC activist, and she went to Indonesia earlier this year and spent a couple of weeks um, moving around and talking directly to the refugees who are trapped there. Um, Danai Bosler is coming from the Victor Victorian Trade Hall Council, and Tim Reid, who is the state MP for Brunswick for the Greens, he'll be speaking as well. So it's a powerful lineup of speakers, people who turn up at two o'clock at the State Library today, I'm sure we'll learn a lot. And I think it's worth adding, right now, we're not just angry with the government over these three sets of offshore refugees. We are hopping mad because of the disgraceful way the government has responded to the High Court decision. Oh, I know. Which has freed some 80 or so men from detention. Um, and Labor, with the backing of the Liberals, in fact, actually with the urging of the Liberals, has rushed through the most draconian legislation, um, which is completely racist. It's, it, it, it only works on the basis that it applies to foreigners. Um, because just to remind, remind listeners, there are, in fact, hundreds of people in indefinite detention who have served time for criminal offences, although some of them haven't even served time. Some of them have just had their visas cancelled, and they can't be returned to their home countries, and they don't have a visa. So they've been in detention, in some cases, for 10 or 11 years. And the High Court finally said, you can't lock people up indefinitely. Uh, you either have to deport them, and in the case of these people, there is no option for deportation, or you have to free them. And so something like 80 or so men have been freed so far. And, of course, the media has gone mad because a handful of these people have committed serious crimes. But people who commit serious crimes get punished for them. They go to jail. They get released from jail. And then, all things being equal, they get on and rebuild their lives. But these people, because they don't have citizenship, because they're uh, being locked up, in detention under the 501 provision, um, these, these men are being treated completely differently from Australians. And Labor has really collapsed under the weight of a, a completely racist scare campaign that all these people are a terrible risk. But they, they weren't released from prison. They were released from detention. Oh, and uh, these people have been in, in detention for, you know, a decade. I mean, it's, it's an outrage. The level yeah. of cruelty is really quite hard to express, isn't it? It, it, it is gobsmacking. And um, we've got Claire O'Neill, the Home Affairs Minister, who is really in charge of this entire process. I mean, the more I look at her, 
the more I think she's morphing into the Bronwyn Bishop of, of oh the library. She is mean and nasty. And has said if she had her way, all these people would be back in detention, which means locked up for life. Locked oh, no, up it's for just life. Outrageous. And, oh. and the ones who committed crimes and went to prison have done their time. Anybody else, you do your time and you come out and you might be on the sex offenders register or you might have probation or officers looking, you know, in, into your life, but you're, but you're out. But when you are a non-citizen, you are treated worse than an animal. It's just outrageous. It's just outrageous. Anyway, I can um, I uh, doff my hat to you as a speak out in uh, Indonesia, Australia's biggest offshore detention centre. But obviously, so many more things that people should be aware of. The refugee issue is not over. Uh, and uh, your rally is at uh, two p.m. at the State Library steps. Thanks. It is. Thanks very much. I look forward to welcoming people there. Thanks for talking to me today, David. No worries. Thank you. That was David Glanz from the Refugee Action Collective talking to Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast. And now we'll jump to a song, and then on the way back we'll have some more interviews for you.
And that was Sunshine on a Rainy Day by Christina Nu. Now I'm going to be speaking to Adam Zolanik, who is a teaching specialist, Korean Studies, Asia Institute at University of Melbourne. And we're going to be discussing the definition of feminist in the Korean language and why civic groups want a language reform in South Korea. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No worries. So, Adam, we let's just first look at what does feminist uh, is defined as in South Korea and why is this a problem at the moment? Yes, well, first of all, thank you for taking interest in my study. Um, and, and it's very good that you mentioned that this is South Korea. Of course, there are two Koreas. This is the Republic mm-hmm. of Korea, the one where we get all our K-pop, K-drama and... Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that in Korean fried chicken. Yes. Uh, so in South Korea, the term feminist uh, was initially defined by the National Institute of the Korean Language, which is, we don't have these sorts of institutes here in Australia. We have the Ministry of Education that may work with dictionaries. But in South Korea, we have this one big institute that basically dictates how languages uh, utilized, so creates dictionaries and so on. Uh, they define the term feminist as, uh, one, a person who adheres to or advocates feminism, uh, which wasn't really so problematic, but then B, which is the second definition, someone who reveres women or a man who is kind to women. Now, why is this a problem? Um, well, the hitch, of course, is that um, this sort of definition portrays feminists as primarily men. And it also completely overlooks the the broader scope of the feminist movement. The the broader movement, of course, encompasses various theories and political activism, and it's aimed at eradicating all forms of discrimination against women. Uh, And, you know, obviously there are a lot of uh, women and and, and men and and, and everyone else uh, who can be termed uh, as as a feminist. Mm. So the term became quite... A contentious issue, um, and particularly during the Me Too movement in the mid to late 2010s uh, in South Korea. I see. So, what exactly did they want feminists to be defined as? And I think uh, we also should emphasize the there's a difference with understanding what feminist is wanting to be defined as compared to feminism as well. Yes, correct. So. Um, The civic organization that initially took issue with uh, or discovered uh, these definitions was the Korean Women's Associations United, which is the leading civic group Mm. for women in South Korea. Uh, And they believed uh, that um, feminism, uh, which had an okay definition in in the Korean dictionary, Mm. uh, should be defined as a viewpoint advocating the elimination of gender-based political, economic, and sociocultural discrimination. So basically an intersectionality, um, which we can see a lot in, in Western uh, uh, feminism. They, they stress the importance of a revised definition that acknowledged uh, the diverse nature of the feminist movement um, as addressing discrimination based on class, race, ethnicity, ability, uh, sexual orientation, geographic location, nationality, and also other forms of social exclusion. So, so for them, basically, uh, it, it was about embracing a much more comprehensive understanding of feminism uh, and what it is to be a feminist uh, than what the original definition had suggested. Mm, I see. And how exactly has 
South Korea's situation have been dealing with feminism and in 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 the in a sense of gender gender equality in a way. It has been pretty bad, uh, I have to say. Mm. Um, Korea is traditionally uh, a very conservative society. Um, has cornerstones that come from uh, neo-Confucianism, which is a very top-down um, nature, and uh, you know, women were not really uh, treated equally uh, mm-hmm. within that system. Uh, and over the years, of course, feminism in South Korea has seen changes, especially during the uh, the Me Too movement, which sort mm-hmm. of began in the mid 2010s or, or 16, when women started coming forward and talking about. Uh, sexual violence um, in different sectors, professional sectors like politics, um, but also the um, K-pop industry, for example. And groups like the People's Solidarity for Participatory Democracy, which is the largest civic group in South Korea, which um, combines lots of different smaller civic groups like the Korean Women's Association United, they have actively championed gender equality and challenged societal norms in South Korea. Um, you know, really sort of trying to, to change these things. And, of course, uh, when this term was noticed, uh, it was within this context of the Me Too movement in, in South Korea. Mm, I see. And according according to an article, this person um, named Cho Jong-do, who is the curator of the Standard Korean Language Dictionary, yeah. he mentioned that the, fam- the term feminist has been historically defined as quote, wife-fearer or wife-fearing husband. So is there a reason why this, it was defined this way? Like, historically, how how were these definitions created? Yes. Yes. So, I mean, uh, dictionary definitions in South Korea, as is the case in, in many countries, uh, are shaped by historical perspectives and societal attitudes. So once again, uh, Confucian values, uh, but also uh, really the dictionaries. And, and sources, resources that are used to compile these dictionaries. So the, the research that I'm doing at the moment is actually looking at the origins of uh, the very word feminism, the very term in South Korea, to see where this definition, which was found to be problematic, actually stemmed from. And I found that uh, there's actually an almost identical definition in Japanese dictionaries as well, mm. uh, which often tend to have a longer history. And, and a lot of Korean dictionaries, because obviously South Korea is a much um, younger nation in terms of just the Republic of Korea, Mm. Uh, they tended to be based on Japanese dictionaries, sometimes with Japanese dictionaries just translated almost verbatim um, into Korean. So it's very interesting to see that very old Japanese dictionaries, for example, also have uh, that sort of definition of feminist with um, it being defined as a man who is kind towards women. But they also have a notation which states that uh, this usage is not used in English. It's not a usage that you can find in the English language, Mm, mm. uh, which is very interesting and would suggest that maybe there's also a case of feminists having um, its definition changed a little bit over time within the context, almost to become a false friend in a way. Uh, And there are many of these words, especially in in Japanese, so loan words, uh, that actually mean very different things now. Mm. But, of course, there is an issue where we have a word which sounds the same and and also, you know, comes to represent the feminist movement uh, and then also maybe has this other meaning, which is very demeaning. Uh, So the terms that Choi Jong-do, who is the former curator of the 
um, Korean dictionary, uh, yeah. when, when he used terms like wife theory and wife lover, uh, these were Sino-Korean uh, for character words, mm. uh, which are used uh, in not just Korean, but also Chinese and Japanese. So really, they do show us that um, there is a much broader issue. It's not just an issue of, I guess, Korea. It, it, it is something that's really deeply ingrained uh, in at least because I only specialize in Japan and Korean and no bit of Chinese, uh, those three nations, but also, you know, may very well be the case in, in other societies in, in Asia as well. Mm, I see. And I, I think when it comes to dictionaries in South Korea, a lot of them rely on the on Neva, which is like their right. online Korean dictionary. Yep. And then, so why do you think this dictionary uh, significantly plays uh, plays a significant role in protecting the ideology of feminism and women, and does this affect the global context? Yes, that's a very good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, just to outline Neva a little bit more, it's it's a mega portal. Uh, we don't really have this con- um, concept as much in in other countries outside of uh, Korea. Also in Japan, they have Yahoo. Mm -hmm. Uh, In China, you might have Weibo and and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Korea, it's Naver. And if you go into this portal, uh, it's not just a search engine or a dictionary. It's everything, basically, that you Mm -hmm. need in your everyday life on the Internet. So there's shopping, there's news, um, dictionaries. So there's really very high accessibility. Uh, It's not like, you know, maybe in Australia, you'd have to whip out your... Collins Dictionary or Webster Dictionary mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of search through it to, to find a word during a class activity. It's it's a resource that's really very highly utilized in South Korea. People use dictionaries quite a lot. And so the, the accessibility is very, very high. Um, now, the influence of dictionaries on our understanding of ourselves um, and including, you know, movements like, like the feminist movement uh, has much broader implications for equality. Um, biased definitions can perpetuate gender stereotypes. Um, they can hinder efforts for true gender equality. Uh, and, and I think that this ongoing controversy really reflects sort of societal debates and gender roles, um, and it really affects public perception and, and discourse as well. So it's really crucial to address uh, issues like this for a more inclusive society in South Korea. And whilst doing so... Um, and this is where the global aspect comes in, really uh, contribute to global discussions on gender equality. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, particularly in, in Asia, um, I would say, uh, Korea, of course, prides itself on its cultural exports. I mean, mm-hmm. we all know about the Korean wave, about BTS and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has this really exciting sort of um, aspect to it. And, and it, it has a very high visibility, I would say, on the world scene. So I think really South Korean society and, and the government, uh, which you know leads initiatives like this Institute of the Language, uh, need to step forward and really look at um, societal issues like this, um, you know, treatment of women, uh, also uh, various racial issues as well. Um, so I think it's it's, it's very very important um, that uh, this is looked at. If the Korean wave and, and how we perceive South Korea is sort of not to be impacted. So it, it, it's also an economical issue, you could say, mm. um, oh, okay. which which is something that I think often we, it, it's not nice to think about, but it is important um, considering that, you know, the government, it, it's probably what means the most to the government, unfortunately. 
um, in, in, in these sorts of contexts. So it, it's definitely something that, that needs to be looked into and investigated. Mm, I see. Uh, well, Adam, unfortunately, we're running out of time already. Uh, so just one last question for you. How, so we so now that we know that the dictionary obviously plays a very big role because it's like it's not it's not just a dictionary uh, that Neva has that helps to define definitions for when it comes to feminism. It's also mm-hmm. a very big platform to know a lot of stuff in regards to South Korea in general and obviously every, a lot yeah. of things that is in Korean language. So. Do you how how do you see the path is going to move forward with South Korea's understanding towards equality? Is this going to be something that will hopefully soon be good news in terms of getting the right definition there, or how is it going to be there? Well, there is some good news in that in 2018, um, the Institute of the National Language um, got a new director, uh, mm. and the new director is a woman, and mm. uh, she's a professor at. Uh, Seoul National University, which is the largest um, and highest-ranked university in South Korea. Mm. And she actually made some announcements. This was back in 2000 and uh, actually at the start of um, this year and towards the end of last year, um, that there were issues uh, with definitions within the dictionary that were outdated and not reflect on um, current sort of standards and norms in society, uh, and that the Institute would be looking at making um, really widespread revisions um, to to make amends. Now, I haven't seen this happen yet, mm-hmm. uh, and there are also, I guess, problems with money. Um, I think um, she mentioned that there would be, you know, it, it would be a few million dollars um, that would be required for this project, which takes, you know, about five to ten years, whereas the funding that they get annually is, um, I think, one-tenth of that or, or less. So there isn't an issue of money. So I predict that um, there may be some minor changes um, within dictionaries, perhaps, but within society, really, the key for the current administration uh, with President Yoon Song-yeol, he has been criticized as well a little bit um, Mm. in in terms of his stance towards uh, women and, and, and feminism. Um, you know, I think, yeah, th- there'll be a lot of uh, pressure required for, for there to be changes. But, I mean, you never know. And I am hopeful um, mm. that things will improve in, in, in the near future, in the next 10 years or so. Let's hope that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam. It's been lovely having you on our show. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Knocking the top off. People's History of Alcohol in Australia is a heavily illustrated 67-chapter book co-edited by Alex Etling and Ian McIntyre, delivering an incisive alternative history of Australia from the bottom up that includes stories ranging from the convict era resistance through to actions by workers, people with disability and anti-fascists today. Alcohol and pubs' many and varied roles in social change, music, art and more are explored by more than 20 writers. These include Jeff Sparrow, Wendy Bacon, Gary Foley, Diane Kirkby, David Nichols, Tanya Luckins and Graham Willett. Copies can be purchased directly from 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours. To find out more details or buy the book online, visit interventions.org.au. A 3CR supporter. 
Talk Back with Attitude is having a picnic with principles. And that's all you'll get if you don't bring a plate. 12 noon on Thursday, the 14th of December, Parliament Gardens, corner of Spring and Lonsdale Streets in the city. I can't believe this. Pasquale is in bloody Sydney and he's telling us there's a picnic and MTL's talking about principles. Just bring food and drink, okay? Food and drink. Stuff the principles. Stuff Celebrate them. getting through another year. Come to our picnic with platitudes by Talkback with Attitude. And if you don't bring food to share and something to drink, all you'll get is attitude. Save the date, 12 noon, Thursday the 14th of December at Parliament Gardens in the corner of Spring and Lonsdale Streets. Pasquale, you're not here. We've removed you from the 3CR Talkback with Attitude records. Come along to a picnic, picnic in, in the, the park. park with the Talkback team. We'll see you on the 14th. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And before that, I was speaking to Adam Zolanik, who is the teaching specialist for Korean studies at the Asian Institute at University of Melbourne, where we were discussing the definition of feminist in the Korean language and why civic groups want a language reform in South Korea. Now, I'm going to be heading on to our 16 days of activism content. So today actually marks the 10th day already of 16 days of activism, where we focus on activism against gender-based, uh, activism content against gender-based violence. So joining me this morning is Helena Hassani, who is the executive director of the newly founded company, Bolan Powers, which is a visionary venture dedicated to ending child and forced marriage, both within Australia and globally. Good morning, Has- good, good morning, Helena. Good morning, Grace. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely to have you. So, Helena, can we first get to know about what prompts you to start this company? Of course, um, yeah, that's a great question. So the motivation to start Blunt Paras company stem from various factors, such as identifying a huge gap in the system, uh, especially Australian system. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, it uh, comes to my personal passion and my expertise in this field and a great desire for ending child and forced marriage, which is a vision to solve this problem. And by offering 
this unique Bland Parwa's service uh, to respond to this critical issue. In addition to uh, um, the desire um, and the closing the gap, I have everything required to support young girls or young people, especially based on my background, skills, interest, knowledge, and the observation on these issues, which is significant help for people in the sector or those even experiencing this devastating issue. Mm, I see. And what does Bolin Powers mean? That, that as, as, that's, that's the name for your company, basically. That's right. Uh, I've been getting a lot of uh, questions for this. <laughs> so Bland Parwas, it means um, in like Persian, Dari, Hazaragi, even in Urdu and Hindi means to fly high, to reach your full potential and to aspire to do great things, which means there is no limitation in what you can do in your life. Mm, that's very interesting. Is there a reason why you chose this or is it just because of the definition um yeah 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 it's um it's both because of the beautiful definition but also like you know how uh, what i could see people are capable of Mm. and what we can actually do in terms of ending and um uh, the child and forced marriage uh, both in australia and globally Mm, i see and what is Ball and Powers going to be about? Uh, I, I was, uh, we understand that it's dedicated to ending child and forced marriage, uh, but how? What? What is the com- What's it, what's the company going to be focusing on? I think uh, it's very clear in our um, vision what we want to do, uh, but we will do, achieve that through, like you know, undertaking innovative and survival-led initi- initiatives, mm. such as the design and delivery of training programs, participatory research, youth and cultural leader um, workshops, and creating culturally sensitive contents or resources and tools which will be in language culture and also the grassroots um, advocacy campaigns uh, doing some like, you know, media and community uh, communication strategies. Um, So we take uh, what we learn and also we will create um, to service uh, uh, support service providers, uh, policy makers to understand this issue deeply and we can advise them on specific intersectional experiences affecting women, girls and families from migrants um, and refugee groups especially and also highlight um, the existing links between child and forced marriage and other forms of gender-based violence um, and how it actually intersect these all, all of these issues inter- intersect together. So it's we've got a big vision, but specifically ending um, um, child and forced marriage. Mm, I see. And, and, you know, we understand that it's always so important that we are educated based on proper expertise. And I remember when we were talking about combating anti-slavery with a survival-led approach about about probably a month back now. And that was a very interesting topic into understanding uh that that there was going to be an event about how to teach uh, and let people understand 
um, on combating anti-slavery with survival-led approach. Will this be will this be the same way for Bolin powers in approaching, or how is it going to be different? Um, yes, yes. At Bulan Parvaz, we work with victim survivors, uh, which is again uh, victim survivor led, mm. and we work with groups, organisations, local and international government agencies, communities, and young people to actually equip them with the tools and knowledge they need to bring an end to child and forced marriage in Australia and abroad. Um, what we are lacking in Australia when responding to forced marriage is the voice of victim survivors. And through Bulan Parwaz, we ensure this gap is closed because we must understand things from their point of view, which is trauma-informed, and hear what their voices are before we offer any supports that we think will be helpful. I guess we have to remember that we should work with people um, who are experiencing these sort of issues, not do the work for the people. Um, I think personally knowing how devastating it is to be in such a, a situation has helped me to advocate on every level possible to tackle this issue whilst being an active um, member of the community which is being affected uh, to advocate for a systematic change through policies and legislation. So this is what is very different um, about Blunt Parwaz or in um, at Blunt Parwaz. Mm. Awesome. And Helena, at the moment we are in our 10th tenth, tenth day already of the 16 days of activism. Why do you think it's so important to focus on ending gender-based violence? And how can Bolan Powers uh, have help to for people to get the access on resources that the company is going to be providing to help understand? Um, I, I think uh, ending gender-based violence is a crucial um, like, you know, crucial way for creating a safer, more equitable society where everyone can thrive without fear or discrimination. So Blunt Parwas can contribute to this cause by implementing policies that promote gender equality within our system as well as globally. Uh, when I say within our system, I'm indicating to Australian system. Um, we support and work with initiatives that raise awareness about gender-based violence, providing resources, training to employees on recognizing and addressing child and forced marriage issues, and also actively participating in campaigns mm. or even collaborations aimed at preventing and eliminating gender-based violence. Additionally, Bulan Parwas can support organizations or causes uh, dedicated to aiding victim survivors and advocating for policy changes that addresses the root causes of gender-based violence. And I guess it's important to remember that child and forced marriage is a significant issue which impacts over 80% of uh, women and and girls uh, when we talk about gender and um, that to address this, we have to address the entire uh, gender-based uh, violence uh, before we address um, child and forced marriage. 
And uh, in this, uh, I, I l- launched the Bland Parwas during the um, 16 days of activism because it's very closely relevant to these um, these uh, uh, days uh, because it's all about raising awareness. It's all about like you know letting the community know this is a gender-based uh, violence or violation of. Uh, human rights and we have to work together collaborate together to bring an end to this where everyone uh, including young children women girls anyone in this world um, are living equally and safely and no one is um, uh, like you know dominant over anyone else we are all human beings we are all equal and we should be treated um, equally Awesome. Helena, sorry, I just wanted to ask just one last question for you, if that's okay. Sure. And, um, what do you, uh, because obviously Balan Powers was only just founded about less than a week ago, and so it's, it's still quite new in terms of how is it going to go. What What do you hope um, you can set to achieve um, for the new coming year in 2024 for Balan Powers? Sure. Uh, great question. <laughs> That's my goal too. I've been already contacted by um, different organizations um, around Australia who are very keen to um, undertake um, trainings or workshops which actually enhance their knowledge, their skills in identifying and responding to child and forced marriage. Because uh, there, are, I think um, there are a lot of myths in Australia that people think it does not happen in Australia. And it is uh, like, you know, it's an issue of the past. Um, but when we actually dig into um, this issue, it is happening now. It's a very common practice, unfortunately, um, in Australia. And um, it, it, it shows how people are getting um, awareness and people are willing to understand the issue and to actually uh, uh, implement policies which are addressing this issue and also have the tools and the uh, 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 have the tools and the knowledge to support those who are reaching out for services or for support and also having those skills to um, do that within a timely manner. So by this, um, I guess Blood Parvaz is hoping that we reach out to more services, to more individuals, to more communities where we can work together and uh, uh, like eliminate or end child and forced marriage in Australia. Awesome. Thank you so much, Helena. It's been lovely having you. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Thank you for having me. You too. Thank you so much. And that was Helena Hassani, the executive director of the newly founded company Bolan Powers, which is a visionary venture dedicated to ending child and forced marriage, both within Australia and globally. You've been listening to 3CR 855am. Many refugees who still don't have the right to work are feeling the impacts of the cost of living crisis, leaving them unable to put food on the table for their families, let alone afford rent, health care and other essentials. Give to ASRC's end-of-year appeal and help shine a light of hope for refugees and people seeking asylum this festive season. Donate today at asrc.org.au forward slash donate. A3CR supporter.
3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference, happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter.
That was Cloud Busting by the legendary Kate Bush. And now Monday Breakfast is going to be joined by Professor Lucas Walsh, who is the director for the Center for the Center for Youth Policy and Education Practice at Monash University, and who is also the lead author of the 2023 Australian Youth Barometer. Uh, Lucas Walsh, thanks for joining the program today. My pleasure. It's good to be here. Now, just to set the scene, Lucas, what exactly is the Australian Youth Barometer? Every year for the last three years, we've been surveying over 500 young Australians and interviewing 30 more to get a deep dive picture of the kinds of challenges and pressures that they're experiencing. And this year's findings has just been published. Ah, fantastic. So um, what was the highest worry for young Australians this year? Financial pressures loom large. There, there are a couple of things that, that are, you know, are their greatest worries. And the, the big story for this year, which won't come as a surprise to many listeners, are financial pressures. So, you know, 90% of ex, uh, experienced financial pressures in the last year, and uh, only 52% thought it was likely or extremely likely that they'll achieve financial security in the future. They're worried about things like housing affordability, as well as big-ticket items that continue, such as climate change. Right. So it seems like young people are fairly concerned about their future. Is that right? Uh, They're very concerned about their future. They have what we're calling a dark optimism. You you know, many are hopeful that things will work out in the longer term, but there is definitely a pessimism, if not an anxiety, about particularly the near future, you know, getting through the next few years. So when when it comes to young people being worried about their future, um, them being worried about what's coming suggests that there's a lot of insecurity. Was Did much of the interviews or the surveys um, dredge up anything to do with insecurities concerns? 
Insecurity was a thread running throughout it, and insecurity, you know, comes in a number of forms. So, for example, one in five experienced food insecurity where they didn't have access to sufficiently nutritious or culturally appropriate food. They, they're talking about housing and rental affordability, which is a form of uh, accommodation insecurity, as well as insecurity about the planet in the form of climate in, uh, insecurity. Fantastic. And... Um when it comes to climate change, for example, was there much um, was there much um, interviewed about regarding how that's going to impact young people into the future? The really distressing part is that a large proportion believe that uh, insufficient action will will be taken on climate change. So they feel as though they there's not being enough done about climate change. They also had expressed an interest in learning more about climate change and responding to it in their education. Right, so there is a propensity or there is a willingness to learn about how to make things a bit better. Well, yeah, absolutely. There's there's a desire to, and in fact, young people themselves are far more politically and civically engaged than we often give them credit for, particularly in more personal forms of participation. I mean, our... This year's findings found that 73% of young Australians had volunteered in organised activities at least once in the last year. And these tended to be in, you know, in the arts, cultural services or environmental-related and welfare-related activities. This tells us that they're far more active and engaged than we give them credit for and that they want to make a difference. And, and you know, beyond the, the barometer, we see that uh, in the form of the kinds of uh, protests that are taking place in the strikes of the climate and so forth. Yeah, wow, that's very interesting. Now, um, we've focused a lot on the negatives of the youth barometer or what the youth barometer has brought up. Uh, are there any positives that the barometer um, has found this year? Look, I have to be honest with you. When we started the barometer, it was during the pandemic. And what we expected to see was as lockdown measures were um lowered or removed, particularly along the eastern seaboard of Australia, you know, those most affected states such as New South Wales and Victoria, we thought we'd see an uptick in the findings. But in fact, what's happened is they're actually worse than in previous years. So we don't collect the data in order just to tell a doom and gloom story. But the fact is that these findings are extremely challenging and should act as a clarion call for all of us to take action. I mean, you know, over a quarter saw their mental health as poor or very poor, uh, whereas only 36% rated it as good or excellent. These figures need to be higher. We have a mental health crisis in Australia, and although there is this optimism evident, in, particularly in some of the interviews, as I said, it's a very tempered or dark optimism. It's probably, we probably don't have enough time to really go into it, but what sort of actions do you think could really help young people um, be a bit more secure and feel a bit more secure about their future? Well, we, we, for a kick-off, we really need to address housing and rental affordability. You know, home is where security is made, and I think that uh, we need to have really quite a radical policy transformation that stop, stops treating a roof over your head as an asset, but rather as a place to live. And our governments are tinkering around the edges in relation to housing and rental affordability, but much more needs to be done at the places where young people live and interact. Yeah, right. Well, that sounds like something that myself and Grace could both get around. 
Um, and just to finish off, um, the article in the conversation that we're talking about suggests that there might be what's called a youth quake happening. What exactly is a youth quake? A youth quake is when there, you know, the circumstances of the time bring about a shift in values and and actions and thinking with young people. And I mean, it's, it's, as Quake suggests, a really significant one. Uh, you know, uh, listeners might have read about the kinds of change that took place in the 1960s where there was this really quite enormous uh, release of historical energy and upheaval. All of our indicators are suggesting a shift in the way that they engage politics, in the way that they think about their own lives and living sustainably. And all of these indicators add up to the possibility of a youth quake. And our job as researchers is to determine, is it just a tremor or is it an earthquake? If it's a, if it's a, if it's a youth quake, I should say, then uh, politicians need to be paying attention. Right. Well, thank you so much, Professor Lucas Walsh, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Professor Lucas Walsh, Director of the Centre for Youth Policy and Education Practice at Monash University and the lead author of the 2023 Australian Youth Barometer. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3cr and put them in the books and boots bin books and boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional first nations communities and children across the country contact us at books and boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, 
visit our website at buy-alliance.org, email info at buy-alliance.org, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm Knocking the top off, a people's history of alcohol in Australia is a heavily illustrated 67-chapter book co-edited by Alex Etling and Ian McIntyre, delivering an incisive alternative history of Australia from the bottom up. It includes stories ranging from the convict era resistance through to actions by workers, people with disability and anti-fascists today. Alcohol and pubs' many and varied roles in social change, music, art and more are explored by more than 20 writers. These include Jeff Sparrow, Wendy Bacon, Gary Foley, Diane Kirkby, David Nichols, Tanya Luckins and Graham Willett. Copies can be purchased directly from 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours. To find out more details or buy the book online, visit interventions.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Favourite Texas singing cowboy Charlie Crockett returns to Melbourne this February for a huge night at the Forum. Charlie and his band, the Blue Drifters, will deliver another scorching night of timeless country classics and Wild West tales on February the 12th with country soul queen Emma Donovan. Charlie Crockett and Emma Donovan at the Forum in February. Good times. Tickets on sale now. Love Police is a 3CR supporter.
Left my house, it's time to silence. Used to bug me, but now I don't mind it. Since the world's been turning upside down, I've been feeling in ways I didn't think I knew how. Cause the world will keep on turning, just not quite the way it's been though. And they'll keep saying it's alright, but it's been so long since it's been so. Baby, you and I just two blowflies sitting by a bathroom window. Maybe we just gotta ride this one out. You are here on Monday Breakfast with James and Grace, and that was Since the World's Been Turning Upside Down by Quality Used Cars, a great local Melbourne band. And we're just about at the end of the show, Grace, so what's planned for the rest of your week? Hmm, interesting. I, for, I mean, for today, definitely, I'm just going to be hanging out with my friends. We're actually going to be doing a picnic, so that's going to be a really fun stuff. A picnic? There. Yeah, because the brothers, finally the sun's out, it's been raining. It was so depressing and the, it was been raining the whole entire of last week. Yeah. So I'm so glad that our sun is out on my birthday and just really happy about that. I think it's a good start for a first day of the week. And so I'm just going to be doing that. And then for the rest of the week, um, just be chilling. And my mom and my brother's coming over to Melbourne this Saturday. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, so, because I'm going to be... Oh, my graduation's next week, actually. So, yeah, big stuff coming. So, it's going to be a bit busy, but... So, yeah, I'm just going to be doing... Just chilling and all for this weekend, basically, pretty much. You've got a lot on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. How about you, James? Uh, My week is looking pretty relaxing at this point. Uh, Not too much planned, which is nice. So just going to catch up on a bit of rest that I've been needing. Um, it's kind of the end of the year, and you know at the end of the year when you're all tired and you think, oh, God, I need a break. Yeah. That's where I'm at now. I need a break. <laughs> anyway, so this has been Monday Breakfast. This has been James and Grace. Uh, we'll catch you next week, and have a good week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.